Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. The sun never shone on a cause of greater worth. It is not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. It is not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. Oh, ye that love mankind! Ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny, but the tyrant! Stand forth! Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. Oh, receive the fugitive, and prepare in time an asylum for all mankind. So that, Dominic, was son of East Anglia, Tom Paine, radical enthusiast for revolution, and specifically in this context, author of pamphlet Common Sense, which came out in January 1776. And um, we've got Adam Smith with us. Adam, am I right in saying that this is really the the first kind of mass market pamphlet that argues for removing America's links with the British monarchy? It was genuinely a bestseller genuinely a bestseller and it was it was subsidized and it was circulated across all of the 13 colonies and it was as you say the first pamphlet to explicitly and clearly make the case not only for independence but a positive case for republicanism so hello everybody just to give you a bit of context if you're just tuning in this is the third in our series on the american revolution we have had uh, the boston tea party we've had the battle of bunker hill um, the colonies have been declared by George III as being in open revolt. And we are now in January 1776 with the publication of this extraordinary pamphlet. Half a million copies, Adam, I think it's sold by the end of the year. And Thomas Paine is actually, the irony is he's not actually American. So he's gone to America, but he is, as Tom's exquisite uh, impression suggests, he's from Thetford in, uh, in Norfolk. And he used to make corsets, I think. I think that was in, in Sussex. He moved to, to Lewis. To make the courses in Lewis, I believe so. Yes. Okay. Well, um, and he was—he'd been twice been sacked as a customs officer, ironically, um, for <laughs> incompetence <laughs> and corruption. I think. Um, so, are you a big Thomas Paine fan, Adam? I'm not really. I have to say, Dominic, I do admire the muscularity of his prose and common sense. Is you can see why it was so effective. It doesn't have all the Latin tags and all the learned references that most of the pamphlets of the American Revolution did. Whenever I think of Thomas Paine, though, I think about what happened to his body after he died. Do you know? Do you know this story? He, he, he was. You know, he died in obscurity, and of course, he was very unpopular by the by the end of his life, including in America. But his great British admirer, um, the, the radical um, William Cobbett, went to America and brought back his body 
to England, hoping to that his admirers in England would create some kind of great tomb around it. He couldn't raise the money to do so. So kind of very Lenin behaviour. So he kept the bones of, of Thomas Paine in a, in a box in his house. And, and when he died, they were sold with his effects. And, and nobody knows what happened to them. And there's, there's some of them, some bones have turned up in Australia quite recently. <laughs> and the, there's bits of Thomas Paine all over the world. So poor old Thomas Paine ended ended badly even beyond his life. But that probably <laughs> you probably didn't want me to quite go there. No, that's great. <laughs> but <laughs> to go back to common sense, I mean, this has a massive impact, right? Yes, it really does. And he is the author of these resonant phrases, and you read some of them out uh, just then, Tom. Uh, the cause of America is the cause of all mankind. I mean, that's not only is that a great phrase, that is in many ways, it seems to me the key to understanding American political culture, that what happens in America, the cause of this revolution, everything we do in America, our purpose, this transcendental meaning, we are providentially blessed in some important way. The cause of America is the cause of mankind. What happens here has universal significance. But when, when it comes out, is there a sense in which, as well as infusing the revolution, uh, inspiring kind of a, a an upsurge in, of backing for republicanism. Are there also conservatives among the revolutionaries who become a bit nervous about this, who who kind of you know, pull back from... John Adams, for example, doesn't like common sense at all. He thinks he thinks it's badly argued based on abstractions. You know, John Adams is a serious man who thinks that the business of governments and constitution writing, which he loves, I mean, he likes the business of constitution writing, but he thinks it's a serious business of balancing interests. It's not about all this kind of blue skies thinking, this, these grand abstractions. And he thinks it's very dangerous, the direction that Thomas Paine is going, in, including the, the practical suggestions that Paine is making about how a republic, once you've overthrown the king and the British Empire, should look. and. John Adams doesn't want the debtors and the poor farmers and the western parts of the estates of the states to be running these new uh, independent states should it come to that. So there's a lot of nervousness as well as enthusiasm. And before we get into Adams and what happens next, to go back to that thing of the cause of America is the cause of all mankind, at this point, does the rest of mankind care? I mean, are people watching? I mean, th there's always that sort of sense in America, isn't there, that the world is watching. I mean, it's been chanted so many times by protesters, demonstrators through American history. The eyes of the world are on us, the shot heard around the world. But is the world watching at the beginning of 1776? It's a good question. And I think often the answer is that a lot of the, wor lot of the world anyway is watching. And that's why they're often right to say that. The eyes of the world are upon us, which is the John Winthrop phrase from the 17th century, which was being revived at around about this time or a little bit later, that what happens here matters. And there were always at this time and later and earlier, plenty of people outside of America, people who'd never been there, people who dreamed of America, who projected onto America a kind of vision of the good society, who wanted America to be the future. And what Paine was saying in common sense were the sorts of things that radicals in Britain had been saying for years. And the attacks on the king, which were quite crude and extreme, but which were the sorts of things that you would hear in radical circles in Britain in the, in the 17th century. So the royal brute calling him that kind of, yeah. And to go back now to the sort of military strategic picture, the British have had, they'd been in Boston, but they basically realized they can't, they're trapped in Boston, they have to get out. So 
a couple of months after Payne publishes that pamphlet, um, General Howe, William Howe, who is the commander in Boston, says, okay, out. And they evacuate the city completely. I mean, the city that's been the cockpit of revolution. They take some of the loyal, several thousand loyalists with them who they dump in Halifax in Canada. And then they come down and establish themselves in New York. New York, which we haven't mentioned really at all, actually, in the preceding two episodes. But New York, which has a, I mean, I don't know anything about this period at all, but is New York a more loyal city than, than Boston? Yes, uh, yes, it, it definitely is, and there there are certainly there's a stronghold of of loyalism in New York. It's not a straight. But there had been some conflicts with the New York legislature earlier on over the Quartering Act and things, so it's not quite as straightforward as that. But certainly, the British had reason to believe that if they wanted to create a beachhead, then New York was a good place to do it. Also, because it, of course, is at one end of the Hudson River Valley. So the idea was, if you can send a force down from Canada from Quebec City and up from New York and control the Hudson Valley, then you cut off New England. And there's still this notion that New England is the problem. So if you cut them off from the rest of the colonies, that would be a good strategic move to make. So that's another reason why New York is the focus at that point in 1776. But while the British are sort of working out what their strategic plan is going to be, their authority is pretty much collapsed across the colonies. People aren't listening to their officials. People have set up their own town committees of safety or, or whatever. And the Second Continental Congress is still going. That's right, isn't it? And they are where? They are in Philadelphia now. Yes. And they are busy with the business of government. They have no formal authority to do so, but they are communicating with the colonies who are often now already being referred to as states and saying, you've got to get your house in order, set up a government. Clearly, things uh, the external authority has collapsed they, in the end, of course, do turn their attention to formal things like, well, are we declaring independence or not? But most of the business of the Second Continental Congress up until this point is just preparing for war and trying to keep the business of government going. But that's the key thing, isn't it, which I hadn't properly appreciated, is that with the collapse of British rule and without the announcement of a kind of new state to replace it, everything is in limbo, tax collection, the entire functioning of government. And John Adams, who i keep on invoking, I don't quite like John Adams, really, and he's fundamentally in some ways quite a conservative figure. And his his view um, at the beginning of 1776 is basically, thank goodness that independence has been, our independence has in practice been declared by the British government, referring to the Prohibitory Act at the end of 1775, which prohibited all trade, the whole of the 13 colonies, that isolated all the, extending the coercive acts from Massachusetts to the whole of the colonies. I mean, for Adams, that was that was effectively the British government saying, you are now on your own and we are at war with you. It was them, the British government, that took that initiative. So everything thereafter from John Adams' point of view was merely reactive on the part of the rebels. Because he's conservative and he doesn't want to do anything so subversive as to declare independence himself. Yes. I mean, he by this stage, he, he thinks a formal declaration of independence is certainly going to happen eventually. And he's keen to think of what a constitution will look like in that new state, but he is pleased that, as it were, not just the first shot, but the the declaration of war has come, as he understands it, from London and and not from the colonies. And he's not wrong to think that, because because by declaring a blockade is, is an act of war. And, and that is a, that is what the British government does at the end of 1775. But there are more radical figures. I mean, we've talked about pain, but there are more radical figures who are actually American. Yes. And I guess the, the most celebrated of these is Thomas Jefferson, 
who is the man who will write the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. So what, what has he been up to in the build-up to the war? And then what, what is he doing in the summer of 1776? Jefferson is a very interesting figure. The closest the American Revolution comes to a kind of Robespierrean figure, although in a way that's rather flattering to Jefferson, makes him more of a, a man of, of action than he probably was. I mean, he was a very privileged Virginia planter, slaveholder, who thought of himself as uh, as an intellectual, a man of the Enlightenment, a cosmopolitan figure, steeped in the new ideas, and convinced that he and his generation, and he certainly felt himself to be at the head of his generation, had an opportunity which had rarely, if ever, in human history come before, an opportunity to in a painite way, begin the world anew, to start a new page and reinvent what it meant to be human. And he loved talking in these kinds of ways, and many people find that very inspiring. And he was a great wordsmith. And we see that in the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, which is obviously a beautifully written, sublime document, rightly famous and revered over the last 250 years. The quality of his prose was exceptional. And why is it Jefferson? So first of all, well, why did Congress decide they need a Declaration of Independence? I mean, because there are some people, aren't there? I think New York, maybe Delaware. Some of the colonies are a little bit more dragging their heels about it. Don't think it's the right thing to do. Well, because I was amazed that, that by the 1st of July, only nine of the 13 states have basically signed up to the separation from Britain. I think it was the 2nd of July that the motion was was passed to formally constitute yeah. these new... Well, because there's, there's, there's a brilliant comment in uh, Holton's book where he, he describes how John Adams, again, writes about this decision on the 2nd of July to declare independence and how it will be celebrated with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other. Whereas, in fact, it's the Declaration of Independence, of course, on the 4th of July that is celebrated. Um, and he, he says Americans celebrate the press release rather than the act itself. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a very good question. Why did they need uh, a Declaration of Independence? You know, de Declaration de facto already existed. In Thomas Jefferson's minds, that had been the status quo ante anyway, as we've talked about in previous episodes. Well, you need all the states together, though, don't you? I mean, you need all the states to agree, because otherwise they can be picked off much more readily if they haven't signed up to a kind of central declaration. Yeah. And the, pre and the press release, as you call it, or as Woody Holton calls it, is important because it is, it's a manifesto. It's a statement of principle and it's a justification for what they're doing, aimed in no small part at Paris. At this point, the, the Americans knew that if they were going to engage in, a, in a, what they imagined would be a, a difficult and potentially long military engagement with the British, they were going to need support from France. So it was a, it was a kind of justification, which was necessary for diplomatic purposes, but internally within the United States. And the key thing about the Declaration of Independence and what makes it new is that it, it's the king that's the target of the grievances. It's not Parliament. And it had to be the king. It had to be the king because by this point, they were attempting to secede from the British Empire. Up until this point, they had been saying, we can be effectively a self-governing dominion within the British Empire, and therefore we will still owe loyalty to the king. In July 1776, they were saying, no, 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 we, we are going to create our own empire. And that was often the word that was used. And that was always the word that was used in London, creating their own empire, American empire. Um, 
So therefore, they had to throw off allegiance to the king, and therefore it was necessary for them to turn King George III into this tyrannical uh, figure, necessary in order to justify to the world as well as to themselves what they were doing, just as in the same way it had been necessary in the 1640s for the parliamentary side to focus on the king in the end and why it was necessary for the king to die in the 1640s in order to justify what they were doing. And in propagandistic terms, isn't the effect of that, of proclaiming itself a republic as opposed to a monarchy, it's backward looking because they can then invoke the Roman example, the Roman Republic that expelled its king, and it can draw on all that kind of classical language, elevating freedom and liberty and virtue. But it's also, um, I think you could use the word progressive without too much risk of anachronism, that it's signing itself up to the more progressive element, the more radical element of the Enlightenment, and identifying America, the new world, as a kind of you know, the best hope for humanity that it has cast off the chains, that once again it's a city on a hill, offer an example to the old world. Exactly. And that, that liberty has, has fled from its... Yeah, so back to the pain comments. Has, has, has fled from England and, and has taken up refuge in the new world, exactly. So Adam, I mean, his, different historians have different takes on this. So for example, Gordon Wood, he's written lots about how the language of the Declaration, the language of the Revolution, in fact, is rooted in the what he sees as the, what lots of historians see as the kind of country, oppositional tradition, um, which is a kind of itself an attempt to preserve what people see as the good old cause of 17th century England. Um, so there's that, but there's also the, the Enlightenment, and let's say the French Enlightenment, Voltaire, Montesquieu, these characters, um, and there's John Locke and, and so on and so forth. So which of these traditions do you think is, is can we say which is the more important? Well, I mean, there's also absolutely the biblical traditions that are deriving from the, the Puritan and the Quaker inheritance as well. Tom, absolutely. I mean, but the rights of man, the fact that the creator endows yep. human beings with rights. Even though is, a lot of them are deists, aren't they? In the, yeah, but, the but it's still, but that idea is being framed in a way that can appeal to both, you know, Quakers in Philadelphia and Puritans in, in New England, but it's clearly very biblical. So Adam, untangle some of those strands for us. I mean, the Declaration of Independence itself is clearly Lockean. It's making, a, it's making a Lockean argument about the social contract, that it has been broken, and that's the, that's the core justification for setting up a new government. And this is not accidental. I mean, not just Jefferson, but, the, but the other, these other elite figures uh, gathered together in Philadelphia had read these tracts or at least knew enough about them to be able to speak competently about them. They could do a podcast uh, about them. For they example. could definitely <laughs> do a podcast about them. Yes. Yes. They knew how to fake it. Uh, and so I, I mean, yeah, I don't know how I how far I mean if you if you're just asking about that document itself, it's easy to root it in those Enlightenment uh thinkers, Dominic. And the broader pamphlet literature, and this is where Gordon Wood and his mentor Bernard Balin as making this argument about the Whig country tradition and the good old cause of the 17th century, they're looking at the not just at the Declaration of Independence, but all of the pamphlets published in the preceding 15 years. And they're looking at all, and they're seeing, what they're seeing in that language is the 17th century and early, very early 18th century English language of liberty, Whiggish language of liberty. And so what that does is to give to the revolution a functioning state, I mean, even if very still inchoate, but also a kind of ideology that people can now increasingly sign up to and which gives a kind of motivational justification for what they're doing. Yes, and 
we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. You know, that, that line um, from the preamble to the Declaration of Independence has, of, of course, frequently been cited as effectively the ideological underpinning of the United States. And that is what makes it possible, among other things, but that's the core of it, to think of the American project as an ideological project, a project that is dedicated and this is actually an Abraham Lincoln usage, right? Lincoln at Gettysburg in 1863 turned the Declaration of Independence. wasn't the only person to do it, but he turned the Declaration of Independence into this baptismal document for the nation, not the Articles of Confederation or the Constitution or the Treaty of Paris or any of these other things in, in international law, but the Declaration of Independence because of that rousing and of, and of course, Martin Luther King in 1963 will yeah, also invoke it to talk about equality. Yeah. For a promissory people. note, as, as yeah. King calls yeah. it. Yeah. We've come to cash the check, as he yeah. says in the March yeah. in Washington in 1963. But, but Adam, I mean, that goes to the point, doesn't it? That um, that claim we hold that you know all men are created equal, a lot, some of them don't mean it. I mean, Jefferson himself has 600 slaves in his lifetime. And during his lifetime, I think he freed two. So um, Washington has a mouth... Mouthful of other people's teeth. I mean, these these are. I mean, this is the criticism that is made of them in the twenty first century. By you know, you, we talked last time about the sixteen nineteen projects and so on. That the Declaration of Independence is a, a conservative document. Some people, but would Dominic, say. it's also a, a criticism being made at the time. I mean, we talked about Dr. Johnson in the previous episode. So, Adam, they had a section on slavery which they cut out. Is that right? That Jefferson himself wrote and then cut out? And I think it was it was by far, the, in Jefferson's original draft, it was by far the longest of the list of grievances, some of which are slightly tendentious and all of which are slightly hyperbolic. That was the longest one, the one condemning the king for imposing slavery on the colonies. And that was cut out uh, by the convention. Right. So, so this is, I, I mean, the Declaration of Independence is really, in a way, I mean, it's the most significant, single most significant text, Parche, uh, Woody Holton, you know, in the history of America. So I think it's, it's worth looking at it in the detail that we have done. But we must remember that there is simultaneously a war going on, which we've, we've barely touched on. So why don't we take a break now? And when we come back, let's look at the course of the war and what is going on. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. So we've been talking about the Declaration of Independence, which Congress votes in favor of independence on the 2nd of July, uh, two days later, uh, it's the press release, (laughs) um, (laughs) as we were saying, and there are bells ringing and cannon going off in Philadelphia. A few days later, George Washington reads the declaration to his troops in New York, and they pull down the statue of George III. But of course, I mean, that that's a reminder that there is, as Thomas said just before the break, a war going on. Because they, they melt it down, don't they, and, and turn the statue into bullets. They do indeed, exactly, yes. And even as they do that, the 30,000 British troops, which is, I believe, the largest European force ever sent overseas, which gives you a scale, of, I suppose, of the challenge that is facing Great Britain, 30,000 British troops are coming ashore on Staten Island. And the, the British, so they've said, sod Boston, Boston is gone. The priority now is is New York. That's right, isn't it, Adam? Yes, they've given up on Boston. And the question now is, can they isolate New England? Can they uh, use New York as a base from which they can take Philadelphia, which was functionally the capital of this newly declared uh, independent country or nation or whatever it was, or empire? Um, and... They knew they had a a formal opponent in the Continental Army um, under the command of George Washington. They had reason to believe, not least because of the Battle of Bunker Hill, that they shouldn't underestimate uh, this enemy. But everything else was really still in flux at this point. What kind of a war this was going to be, what role, if any, the Navy was going to be able to play, how much resource could be diverted from the protection of British colonial interests elsewhere in the world. You know, how how important in the end was this going to be? How many, how high were taxes going to go in Britain? Yet again, in order to pay for a, another um, war in North America, all of these things were, were still to be determined in 1776. And so two questions about the British. One is, are they conscious even at this stage about the, that the French and the Spanish might pile in? Yes. That is their big fear. Of course, the king and the Lord North, they don't want to lose the 13 colonies anyway. There's a huge issue of pride and ego and patriotism and all, all these kinds of things. But there is a basic geopolitical anxiety. They previously fought this highly successful war, the Seven Years' War, expelled the French from North America. The obvious danger here is that this is going to provide an opening for the French to repossess part of their or all of their former colonial possessions in North America. So they have to keep some troops back. They have to defend Britain from French invasion, conceivably, and they have to defend the Caribbean. They need to in both instances, because there is, I mean, that's that's the real, that's the real worry is the loss of the Caribbean islands. And of course, there is a genuine threat of invasion after the, the French enter the war in the, in the late 1770s. So, so they're not wrong to think that. <laughs> so my second question very quickly is, do the, are there some people in Britain who think, Okay, cut our losses now. The, the, the thing is gone. 
this has not worked out. Let's call the whole thing off. I mean, the impression I get is that actually quite a number of the um, of the high command think that. A lot of people think that. And, and Lord Chatham, former William, William Pitt, basically thinks that. And, and this is one of the problems that the, the king now has, is that the king is really committed to suppressing this rebellion. And the only prime minister he can work with to achieve that goal is is Lord North. And so when Lord North keeps on saying, I just can't cope with this anymore, please, please, please let me resign at the end of the next parliamentary session. And the king keeps on saying no, because he knows that the only alternative is to invite one of the opposition factional leaders whose policy will be a, a peace policy. So just so just on George III, who's oddly been absent from almost all the story, at this point, is George III genuinely a factor in that he is his stubbornness, his his you know, you can call it his patriotism, if you like, or his small C conservatism or his sense of pride, that that is, is that, is that really a factor in keeping the British fighting? Yes, I think it is. I think it is. And, and I think actually that's the right way of putting it, Dominic, in that really up until now, the irony is that the king hasn't been a major player. And obviously he's not really in control of government policy. He can only implement things through the uh, cabinet. And he's extremely conscious of constitutional prerogatives and and precedents. Um, but he really does very, very, very strongly believe that the Americans should not be allowed to become independent. And so he works very, very hard to, you know, basically keep put some backbone into his cabinet ministers. So he is a factor there. So the issue for the British, how on earth are they going to get America back? Because they won the Battle of Bunker Hill, but then they had to evacuate Boston. So in a sense, winning a battle isn't enough you are only as good as the territory you're holding. And therefore, the question is, what strategy can they put in that would enable them to expand beyond the few kind of toeholds that they have along the coast? And so New York becomes basically the kind of the focus for their hopes. Is that right? Yes. One answer to the question of what strategy they can do is that they could destroy Washington's army, the Continental Army. And they could have, and they actually could have done so. I mean, you know, one of the one of the what ifs in this uh, story is that there were, there were moments early in the war in 1776 and 1777, anyway, when uh, General Howe and General Clinton, who were the two key military commanders in that um, in that region, could potentially have cut off the Continental Army and destroyed it, potentially even captured George Washington and the whole course of the war could have looked extreme, could have looked very different if that had happened. I mean, famously, they could perhaps have prevented the Continental Army from evacuating from Manhattan and they didn't do so. And there are very good reasons why they didn't do so based on logistics and supply and so on. But nevertheless, Washington was able to escape. But that's a key moment, isn't it, Adam? Because they had landed at Staten Island. They have this a uh, huge battle on Long Island, which I think is the biggest single battle of the war, which but the British win. Mm. Half of Washington's army is left trapped in Brooklyn. And then the British hesitate. Mm. And, they, and one reason they hesitate is actually going back to something that Tom, I think, said earlier on, which is that a lot of the British commanders are actually quite ambivalent about the whole business. So General Howe, his brother is Admiral Howe, who's in charge of the Navy, and he used to play chess with Benjamin Franklin when they're in yeah. London. So they're all quite sort of sympathetic to the Americans. Yes, they'd all opposed most of this legislation we've been talking about in previous episodes, all of these people. I mean, it is amazing, yeah. Yeah, they didn't really want the British to be in this situation. Even General Cornwallis, who's famous later on, he had opposed, he voted against the Stamp Act, yeah. incredibly. Um, but anyway, they have a peace conference on Staten Island, don't they? They, they meet John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. Who meets his old chess sparring partner. 
mm-hmm. on Staten Island. And the British say to them, listen, let's just shake hands and pretend this was all a bad dream. Then they, they basically say the king will pardon you. And, and, but the Americans, is it just they're too far gone now? Well, the Americans have already declared independence. From their point of view now, the, the, the only terms for peace will be recognition of American independence. And that, of course, is not something that the British military commanders are authorized or would have wanted to concede even if they had been authorized to do so. So it goes nowhere. But could, I mean, if George III had been a tyrant and the British had been the, the monsters from a Mel Gibson film, presumably they would have just captured or killed the American delegates then and there, destroyed Washington's army, captured or killed him. And we'd be talking about a very different scenario, would we? I mean, is that, do they have the capacity to do that though, Adam? Could they ravage the countryside, take all the towns? You know, could they do that? Do they have the capacity as in, do they have the, the military uh, capacity or do they have the will? Um, they- I mean, they, de- they don't have the will, as you've been saying. And so that's never really a realistic option. I mean, there are some hotheads in London and some pamphlet writers, editorial writers who start suggesting this kind of strategy. But it's in never- the Daily Mail. <laughs> 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 I, I was just actually, even as you were speaking, I was thinking 1,200 <laughs> words, I could bang that out by four o'clock. <laughs> but the weird thing, because the weird thing is, is that, that you absolutely get the sense the Britain's already lost this war, that that lots of the commanders already feel that, that they're too ambivalent, that that things are going, you know, that they don't really have a prospect of it. But at the same time, the Americans feel that they've lost the war. So, you know, they're, they're kind of moaning the game is pretty nearly up. And famously, the kind of the crisis point is when Washington finds himself on the wrong side of the River Delaware. Hmm. To uh, and, uh, and this is kind of the end of this, coming towards the end of December. Loads of his troops are going to are, are due to kind of you know their, their their commissions kind of are up at the end of December. So he feels that he has to do some kind of stunt that will raise morale, and so he he goes back across the Delaware. That's my summary of one of the most famous. <laughs> episodes of American of Washington history. crossing the Delaware. He does, and he and he. And he you're you're that right, Tom. Lydia, the tattooed lady. You can see it on her yeah. on her back. And that kind of fighting spirit attracts the attention of European courts, and together with the British defeat at Saratoga, which is to come in 1777, um, convinces European powers that the American rebels need backing. Well, before we get to Saratoga, just on the Delaware. So the British had ended up capturing Manhattan after the failure of the talks at Staten Island. Washington had then escaped to New Jersey and then gone further south and crossed the River Delaware. And and actually, to add to what Tom was saying, he'd had 19,000 men and now he's only got 3,000 men. So he's a real, I mean, maybe sometimes people overstate the ragtagness, if that's a, a word, of the Continental Army, but they are pretty ragtagged. Yes, yeah, huge problems of supply. and Yeah, I mean, he's very upfront. He needs to raise the spirits of the people. Yeah. And this is when Tom Paine writes another of his pamphlets, doesn't he? These are the times that Troy men's souls, he says in uh, The American Crisis. He, he Which is a good phrase. It is a great, he's a good phrase maker. I mean, like Jefferson, they're terrible people, but they're very good phrase makers. Um, and then Washington does this thing where he, he strikes across the Delaware in, on Boxing Day, Christmas night, is it? Standing up, looking very noble with a flag behind him. Is that the painting? Yes, yeah, so the famous painting that um, apparently got destroyed in the Second World War. By who? By the British, <laughs> ironically, in a bombing raid. Um, it was on the in uh, Bremen, in the, the Bremen Kunsthalle. Was it really? Um, so it was destroyed in 1942. But hold on, yeah. it still exists though, doesn't it? I thought. What are the images of it that you see on the internet? Uh, it's, I suppose it's... Copies. A photo of it, yeah. 
Okay. Yes. All right. Fair enough. So to get back to his attack, so it's Christmas night, and he attacks. And actually, what's interesting is he, he attacks. It's a surprise attack. He has to do it. This great coup de théâtre. He attacks a, a camp that is described as the Hessian camp. So the British have pitched up with a lot of German auxiliaries, or as mm. Americans would call them, mercenaries from Hesse in particular. And this is, am I right in thinking, Adam, that the Americans see this as an absolutely terrible act of betrayal, that the British have brought all these Germans with them? They do. It was a perfectly natural thing to do. I mean, I don't want to dig in in defending the British government, but of course the the king was also the elector of Hanover. It seemed a perfectly natural thing to do to find troops from his um, other domains in, in Europe. And that was the way that the British army always fought um, wars, was by, you know, they, they were a great naval power, fighting land-based campaigns always required using troops from other countries. I mean, the king wrote to Catherine the Great, hoping that she would send Russian troops. That probably would have wound up the Americans uh, even more. Um, And the American army themselves, of course, also used um, auxiliaries, including some from German troops by the end of the war. So, uh, But you're absolutely right that the, the Hessians have uh, become a kind of byword for the the dirty way that the British were were fighting this war, or perhaps more to the point, the fact that the Americans believed that the British were treating them as if they were completely outside the pale. And that was what really stung. Right. But then Washington follows that up with another extraordinary coup de théâtre. So he reaches Princeton, and then he, he looks like he's going to attack General Cornwallis's camp, but actually he sort of sneaks around by a back road, attacks Cornwallis's sort of rear guard, I think, takes them by surprise. This is at Princeton. And by the time Cornwallis gets there, Washington has outwitted him, attacked his rear guard, and then escaped. And these two together create this image. Cheers everyone up. Well, it cheers. It, cheers every, it, it creates the image of Washington as a tremendous commander. It suggests the Americans haven't lost after all. It sends a message across Europe. And I suppose it makes the stakes for the British as they enter 1777 much higher. And this is where we get back to your Hudson Valley strategy, because they really need this to work, don't they? And this is Burgoyne. And Howe. So Howe is going up from New York, isn't it? That's the plan. And Burgoyne will come down from Quebec. But Burgoyne. So Burgoyne is a... Um, He's a poet. A playwright. His nickname was Gentleman Johnny. <laughs> Which, uh, that doesn't s- suggest martial so, vigour. But it's not strike fear in the breasts of his enemies. Well, because, no, but I think that was because he was so polite to his own troops. Polite? Yes, I think he was very, you know, he, he treated them very well. Okay. Well, I was going to say, I don't want a polite general. I want a rough, raucous, hard-driving bastard, Tom. No, so he's sitting in his tent writing plays and being polite to his men. Right. But I think he was actually quite an able general. And I think he, he had a sense that basically this strategy, which is them, him moving southwards, how moving northwards, that it's not going to work. What strikes me about all the British generals in this story is how fundamentally pessimistic they are. Well, I'll tell you a fact about John Burgoyne that will make you think very, very highly of him. He wrote a semi-operatic uh, production of a play about Richard the Lionheart, Tom. And do you know where it was performed in 1788? Uh, no. The Drury Lane Theatre. Can you think of any other great <laughs> acts that have played the Drury Lane Theatre? Who have subsequently gone on to invade America? The rest uh, is history. You and me, darling. The rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> the whole podcast has been leading up to that moment. <laughs> to that revelation. <laughs> moment. I can see Adam. Adam is delighted. This is the <laughs> summit of his scholarly career. So, um, so, so how is going northwards? He's going quite well. He's, he's actually, I mean, he's kind of outmaneuvering Washington, I think, at this point. 
Washington's kind of complaining about this. He says that... Um, but he gets distracted, doesn't he, How? Yeah, so Washington says of Howe that he's engaging in a variety of per- perplexing manoeuvres. <laughs> right. Yeah, you don't want someone to say that about you. Uh, because he ends up taking Philadelphia, which he shouldn't have done. He should have just <laughs> left Philadelphia alone and gone north, isn't it? Yeah. And meanwhile, Burgoyne is coming south from Canada. He has, I read, 30 carts of personal baggage and a baggage train three miles long. And they're proceeding so slowly, they're going less than a mile a day, which is, is not the kind of, I mean, gentle, that's Gentleman Johnny for you, Tom. He's proceeding at a sort of gentleman's pace instead of rushing, as I would have him do. Um, and they get to Saratoga in the autumn, and they find a fellow there called General Horatio Gates. I don't know anything about him. Do you know anything about him, Adam? Yeah, he was an Essex lad. Yeah, he's born in Essex. That's what. That's the main thing I know about him, Dominic. They're all all these Anglians kind of fighting each other. Yeah, <laughs> that's very odd. So he gets there. So so he's already there with his uh, with the New England militia. Burgoyne gets there, and he. It's the classic thing. The British are always trying to attack uphill, which is <laughs> it seems grossly unfair against people hiding behind trees. Correct. Gates is on a place called Bemis Heights or Bemis Heights. I don't know how you pronounce it. Burgoyne charges up the hill on the nineteenth of September. Six hundred of his men shot or wounded and then he ends up basically trapped so it's upstate new york i guess adam is it mm. saratoga this, this is where they they are he's got no food it's pouring with rain it's very cold he's very miserable and um the local people have all burned their farmlands so he hasn't got any can't get any supplies and he's waiting for you know the other british army's going to get there they don't get there so he has another go on the 7th of october driven back again by um, Gates's troops, and basically on the seventeenth of October, so ten days after that, after just sort of hanging around, freezing, starving, wet, miserable, Burgoyne surrenders, but on good terms, right? Because the thing is that they're not kind of taken away to prisoner of war camps. It's agreed that they can go back to the European theatre of war and serve there. It's just that they can't come back to America. Right. So the fact that they go back to Europe means that they can replace troops that can then be sent to America, and so. Gates is, is widely blamed for this. But I suppose the issue, though, from the British perspective is they can't keep losing armies. I mean, they can't just keep throwing endless men into the American moor, as it were. Well, I think, I think that it, what it shows is, is basically that the whole British war effort is, is futile. Essentially, they can't leave the Atlantic seaboard and go inland without being picked off. And that's where the kind of the analogy with the, the Vietnam War, yeah. I think. Kind of well, or any, almost any colonial war, Tom, actually, when you yeah. think about it. I mean, it's striking to me the extent to which, I don't know how much you think this is true, Adam, but this is a prototype for so many European colonial counterinsurgency campaigns in the 19th, 20th centuries. Yeah, where, and, and all yeah, that. where you, yeah. you're desperate trying to pacify the countryside, but your troops go inland and then they get cut off and surrounded by guerrillas and, you know, they run out of supplies and all that kind of thing. Do you think that's fair to describe it as that? Yes, I do. But I also think, and I think Tom's description of the surrender at Saratoga reinforces this, that it was that the British never really fully embraced that. You know, they, I mean, they did learn to it. I mean, it wasn't that the British generals were just hoping for kind of proper set piece battles. They did adapt to the realities of a guerrilla conflict, but they never responded in the way that the Americans did in Vietnam, for example, <laughs> you know, with a kind of scorched earth policy of, of their own, or only in very occasional circumstances. And usually it was, it was loyalist partisans rather than the regular British army. who uh, Right. And, so, and so the fact that, he's, that, that Burgoyne is a gentleman <laughs> is precisely the problem. He really yeah, is a gentleman. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this is obviously sends us, uh, you know, shockwaves across Europe. Now, the French have already been 
secretly supplying the Americans, haven't they? The, yeah. I read that the play, playwright Beaumarchais had formed a dummy corporation to send guns and gunpowder to the Americans, and King Louis the Sixteenth had actually given them a million livres. You know, again, secretly, so it couldn't be traced back to him. So the French, all this time, have been basically rooting for the Americans. And I guess, what is it, February 1778, they make that explicit when they declare war. But just before that, Dominic, yeah, I mean, the most famous French supporter of um, American freedom is the Marquis de Lafayette, very young man, who astonishingly is inspired to go and fight for the Americans by meeting the younger brother of George III, the Duke of Gloucester. He's at a dinner with the Duke of Gloucester, and the Duke of Gloucester is going on about how tremendous the American rebels are and how he's on their side, which seems, that seems kind crazy. of mind-blowing. It's amazing. And if you think of the Duke of Gloucester and Samuel Johnson as kind of you know, different, opin- different shades of opinion in Britain, it does give you a sense in which there is a kind of ideological civil war going on in Britain at this time. But with the French, Adam, I mean, that's a game changer, right? It's a complete game changer. Lafayette was far from being the only uh, European military adventurer to go and join the American cause. Uh, he becomes the, the famous one, doesn't he? Because basically he becomes Washington's adopted son. He does. And they loved him because he offered to fight for no pay and he was willing to serve in the ranks uh, rather than just expecting to be given a commission as most of them did straight away. And also because Lafayette genuinely believed in the cause. There are no, all the evidence is he wasn't just doing this in order to gain military experience and uh, um, earn some money. He was doing this because he really, he really did uh, believe in it. And uh, so he became a hugely important figure as a validation of the universal significance of what the Americans were fighting for, as well as for the, the military expertise that he and, and others brought. So that sort of sense the whole world is watching. Yeah. Shot heard around the world, all that sort of stuff. He he bears that out, I suppose. And so, with the French entry into the war, presumably for Britain now, you know the, the American colonists—they're not neither here nor there. But the absolute priority now is we can't lose huge tracts of our. Uh, you know, we can't lose the Sugar Islands. We can't. We don't want to lose um, Gibraltar. Yeah, Gibraltar. You know, these sort of—I don't know—Menorca, those kinds of places. Yeah. And India, they don't want to lose ground in India to the French and Canada as well. I mean, those or those parts of North America, which is to say Canada and, and Florida at this point, that are, are not engaged in rebellion. Right. So the war now enters a completely new phase. Indeed, the American Revolution enters a new phase. And I think we should probably call a halt here for those of you who are not members of the Rest is History Club. Of course, if you are, the tremendous news is you just you know, keep listening because Adam will be with you in seconds talking about the final stages of the war the surrender at Yorktown, and the beginnings of the, the peacetime American Republic. So you'll be back with all that, won't you, Adam? You're looking forward to it? I certainly will. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Oh, tremendous. Been fun so far. Very sad. <laughs> Tom's not looking forward to it, which is, which is Tom's doing it under duress. Presumably this whole, this whole series has been a trauma for you, has it, Tom? Yeah, it's very traumatic. But um, let's hope it hasn't been traumatic for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell, we'll say thank you very much. See you next time. Bye-bye. 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 Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.